Chronicles chapter 34. That's where we'll be this morning. We're back in our Old Testament series. Long story short, as we've entitled it, looking at the key themes and key, key figures of the Old Testament, learning through them uh, what God is like and what it means to be His people. It's a very important part of understanding who God is and what it means to be His people. Uh, it's very important to study the Old Testament and understand these things. So our goal is to dig into these things to better know God and better know what it is to, to be His people. So I'm glad to be back. Glad to be back in the series. Glad to be back with you guys uh, this Sunday morning. Um, had a nice trip. We were in Florida. Got to see a beautiful place. But this is the most beautiful place where God's people are gathered together. So grateful to be here this morning. Well, uh, some thoughts before we start, before we look at this passage. Can you dream with me a little bit this morning? Can you just dream with me a little bit? Could you dream about New England being suddenly and dramatically affected by the good news of Christ, the good news of Christ crucified for sin and risen for our justification and victory. So could you, could you dream about New England being suddenly and dramatically affected by the good news and a massive spiritual earthquake that shakes the whole region? Can you imagine something like that happening? Can you imagine in that the conviction of sin or offenses against God being so deep that people who previously would have seemed to be exemplary and devoted to God in many ways, these people felt the weight of their cold hearts and sinful behavior so heavily. Now, these are good people and devoted people. They felt conviction so heavily that they openly wept in church in large numbers. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine people being so touched then by the wonder of God the Son crucified and risen to rescue them from their sin that they weep and sing and shout with joy even during the service? They're just so overwhelmed by the goodness of God through Christ that they do that during the service. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine churches being packed with people to the point where there are more people outside trying to get in than can actually fit in the building, and the people outside are just pressing to see and to hear what's going on inside the building. Could you, could you imagine that? Could you imagine congregations so captivated by all of this and the power of God in it that long after the close of the meeting, they stay to pray together and to worship and to sing, and they do that spontaneously for hours and hours, actually staying th throughout the day and as late as 2 in the morning, spontaneously, voluntarily. Can you imagine something like that? Could you imagine the effect being so profound that the whole city hears about it, and it ends up in the newspapers, and, and thousands and thousands of people want to hear about it, and it isn't just one church, but it's a number of churches in the area. And can you imagine... The whole the city's being transformed by their encounter as they come to observe what's going on, as they encounter people who are part of what's going on, as, as they are transformed by the gospel and the presence of God. Can you imagine it, it affecting in a way that actually shifts the culture? Could you imagine it being so dramatic, actually, that, that the NFL can no longer play on Sundays because no one wants to miss church, including the players themselves? Can you imagine that happening? Can you imagine entire industries coming to a halt because people are so transformed by the gospel? 
Their spending habits are radically changed. Certainly no more porn industry, no more drugs, even just the, the sort of way that the economy is distributed, shifting from the things that are less important to, to things like charitable giving and mission giving and, and things that, that change lives in significant ways. Just the whole economy shifting. Can you imagine the court system closing down because there are no cases to try? Could you imagine it being so profound that people come from all over the world, they hear about it, they come to see what's going on, then they themselves are transformed by it, and then they go back to where they're from, wherever it might be in the world, and bring the same experience there. Can you imagine that? Does it seem too far-fetched? It really happened. It really happened. It's not too far-fetched. It happened, and it happened a number of times, but this particular illustration is from the Welsh revival of 1904 to 1905. These sorts of things did happen and yes indeed they could not can keep on having soccer matches anymore because people wanted to be in church. Right? It, it did shift in all these ways. It has happened. God has done it. He did it in the Welsh revival. He did it actually in multiple revivals, things like this throughout history. He did it and he can do it again. And our passage today on the life of King Josiah is really a template of what revival looks like. And that's the word we use. It means new life. When there's new life that comes, the life of God comes in a new way. We call that revival. Second Chronicles 34 to 35 is a template in Scripture of revival. And really, it's a revival that God brings in His amazing mercy to the people of Israel, to God's people, at the end of the, the period of the king. So we're going to look at it. We're going to look at it. We're going to make observations. We're going to learn. But let's pray first and ask God to speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these two chapters and how they teach us about revival, how they teach us what revival looks like, how they show us the elements. Lord, thank you for what you did in the life of King Josiah in the kingdom during his lifetime. And Lord, thank you that for what you did in the Wales Revival, the Welsh Revival. Thank you, Lord, for how you are a God who brings revival. And Lord, teach us now through your word and change our lives in light of this, we pray. For your glory, our good, and your kingdom purposes. Amen. Amen. Please follow along. I'm going to be in Second Chronicles 34 and 35, reading most of these two chapters, just so you can get a picture of the whole story. And it starts out in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the 
governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in, in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Josiah kept the Passover 
to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. Verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was prepared that day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread seven days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. And the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made this, these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah. I want to dig into the life of Josiah in this passage and the things that we've read just to draw some lessons. I have four lessons I want to draw from this. I don't want you to try to necessarily remember the four lessons. There are notes there. You, you can see them. What I want you to remember, though, most of all, is the central lesson. That is this, that we are to seek the God who sends revival. We are to seek the God who sends revival. We are to seek the God who sends revival to undeserving people. That's point one. Seek the God who sends revival through consecrated leaders, point two. Seek the God who sends revival through a revival of his word, point three. And then point four, seek the God who sends revival to accomplish his sovereign purposes. But most importantly, we are to seek the God who sends revival. First, to an undeserving people. The beginning of our story, we read that Josiah became king as an eight-year-old. He's a boy, eight years old. It's remarkable, but it's also pretty sad because he had to become king because his father was murdered. His father had only reigned two years, and actually it was merciful that his reign was short, because Second Chronicles 33:22 tells us he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. So Josiah's father was an evil man. And the reference point is Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. And we read about him in 2 Chronicles 33, 9. It says this, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh led the people of Israel into worse evil than the people who had dwelled there before. 
whose evil was so great that God brought judgment on them. Manasseh had led them into terrible evils. This is Josiah's grandfather. Those included building altars to Baal and totem poles to Asherah, right in the temple itself. Worshipping the stars and the demons associated with the stars, promoting and probably participating in sexual orgies as part of pagan worship, perhaps even in the temple itself, employing male temple prostitutes, pursuing fortune-telling, seances, necromancy, which are related to seances, and even human sacrifices with his own sons. It says that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other. This likely included not only the human sacrifices of children, but his wholesale slaughter of the prophets of God. And for what we understand, Isaiah himself was included in that. Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh, according to tradition. Things couldn't have got much worse than they did under Manasseh. It was a low point for the people of God in the entire Old Testament. It's a shocking outrage how low they had sunk. And I'm sure that there were a remnant of godly people that thought, all is lost. Evil has won. There's no hope. Evil has won the day. We're beyond all chance for reform. All has been lost to evil. I'm sure there were people who were thinking that, living in those days, godly people, just thinking how terrible it is. But this story in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 teaches us that God sends revival even to an undeserving people. Even when things are the darkest, He comes and He moves and He brings revival to a people that are far gone. That is the nature of who God is. That's in the Scripture. That's in history. And if you study the revivals in history, you'll see pretty much the same sort of thing time and time again. Revivals come in the midst of terrible circumstances. Right before the Welsh revival, as fantastic as that was, things had grown pretty dim in Wales. Church attendance was nominal. People really, most of all, wanted to be at their football or soccer matches. In the pubs, gambling and fighting was what they gave themselves to. They spent their money on alcohol and and carousing. They impoverished their families. Families were in uh, shambles. Many of them worked in the mines. The mines were a place of this toxic mix of oppressive working conditions and profanity and vile attitudes. Things looked terrible in Wales before the revival. The future, if you were living in Wales, looked very bleak. Before the Second Great Awakening, a great revival in the early 1800s, things looked terrible here as well. This is in the early years of the Republic, and if you, if you study some of the history, you see it. Uh, we think at times that politics are bad and politicians are bad now. You should read during the time of Jefferson's presidency and around then some of the stuff that went on. The, 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 the excesses, the intrigue, the bitterness, the nastiness, the immorality among, among the leaders of the country was rampant. And it wasn't just the leaders, it was also in many places in the country. The frontier, the Bible Belt today, back then, you know what the Bible Belt was like? It was, it was evil. It was just full. There were cities, frontier cities, that were full of bars and brothels. It was, it was awful, the situation that went on before that revival. Things looked bleak. They looked dark. But God sends revival to undeserving people. And so, my brothers and sisters living here in New England in the year 2017, 
don't lose hope. Don't let the decline around you, maybe even in your own hearts, don't let that decline define you. Let the truth that God sends revival to undeserving people, let that define you and seek the God who sends revival. He sends revival through consecrated leaders. We see that in our story. Amidst the evil of Manasseh and Ammon, God raises up a boy king, Josiah. And from a very early age, he has a heart for God. He's only 16 years old. He starts seeking the Lord, heart after God. And at 20, he starts to act on his devotion as king. He goes after all the idols that Manasseh had set up and were everywhere, in the temple itself, throughout the land. He goes in the temple, he purges of it of all the idols and anything associated with the pagan worship. He gets rid of the house for male prostitutes. He pulverizes the idols and spreads the, the ashes on those who worship them. And he doesn't just stop at the temple, he goes throughout the land doing it. And actually, he even goes into the northern Israel. Now, at this point in time, the, the nations had been separated, but the north had been overrun by the Assyrians. It's not his jurisdiction. But in his zeal for the Lord, he goes into the north, and the, and the north had given itself to idol worship 300 years earlier. He goes after those idols, those very idols, and, and does the same thing up in the north in all these different cities. His zeal to purge the land of idolatry is, is great and full and hot. And he goes after these things and does it again and again. He pulverizes the idols. He actually exhumes the bones of the pagan priests. These were people that were called to be in covenant with God, had given themselves to this awful worship. He, he digs the bones back up and he burns them on the altars, these pagan altars, in his zeal. He, he, he does all this. Actually, there's a prophecy that was given 300 years earlier in Chronicles where this the very beginning of the northern kingdom, they started to give themselves to idols. A prophet said, there's going to be this guy named Josiah who's going to come and he's going to do all this stuff. 300 years later, God raises up a, a man in the darkest time and accomplishes his work and does what he said he would do. That's what goes on through Josiah. God raises this man up. God uses this man to fulfill his promises and to send revival in his amazing grace. God sends revival through consecrated leaders that he raises up. And that's the legacy of revivals throughout history, by the way. If you study the great moves of God, you will discover that those moves of God were led by men that were touched by God. God worked in people's lives. The, the main leaders as well as other leaders, men and women who would have come alongside the leaders, God touched their lives. And so the history of revival is the history of leaders like Josiah. Certainly in the early church, we know which was one century of revival, really. Peter, Paul, other disciples after them led that. Later, Patrick, Luther, Calvin, Knox, William Perkins, and, leading, and, and Thomas Cranmer leading the early English Puritans. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Timothy Dwight leading the Second Great Awakening. Jeremiah Lanfear leading the praying revival of 1857. D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon in, in the work in the late 1800s. Evan Roberts in the Welsh revival. Robert Hardy in Korea. There was a massive revival in Korea around the same time as the, the Welsh revival led by, uh, led by Robert Hardy. Uh, that massive amounts of people came to Christ. And the Korean church as we know it today really was, was born through that amazing revival. Actually, the, the 
practice in the Korean church of praying all at once. If you're in a Korean church, and a lot of churches do that. They'll pray to the congregation. Everyone just prays at once. Um, that started in that revival. That's when that practice started in that revival. Jonathan Goforth in China. William Seymour of Azusa Street. Billy Graham as well got his use. All these biographies uh, tell the story of God's amazing sovereign work of grace in their lives, raising them up to bring revival. Listen to the story of D.L. Moody, what God did in his life to touch him. And this is typical. He says, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God was revealed to me. And I had such an experience of His love that I had to ask Him to stay His hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be small dust in the balance. Did you know that about D.L. Moody? God used him, met him in that way. You can answer me, that's fine. And met him and, and prepared him for the evangelism and harvest that God brought in through him. Oh, that God would do the same through his leaders at all levels. I desire it personally. I desire it for our leaders. I desire it for you guys. I desire it for every significant leader in the church. May God pour out a fresh baptism of his power, truth, and love on his leaders in his church. May he bring revival to his people through them. Would you join me in praying that way? Would you join me in asking God to raise up many Josiahs here in Haverhill, in this church, and beyond, in our nation, to bring revival? We are to seek the God who sends revival through consecrated leaders. Next, we are to seek the God who sends revival through revival of His Word. This is what we see with Josiah. Uh, it's quite a scene that unfolds in our story as we read, as I read earlier. They are cleansing and repairing the temple, and in the process, they're, they're zealous for the Lord. They're purging the temple of idols. They're purging the land of idolatry. They're zealous for the Lord, but they're not too informed at this point. They just know this is evil, and we want the Lord. We want to purge the area of this. So they're not too informed, and in the process of cleaning out the temple, which had been abused and was a, a full of idolatry, they discover the Bible, basically. The book of the law, they discover it. Can you imagine what that must have been like? It, it's actually, it's both tragic, it's a heart-wrenching tragedy and a joyous blessing. It's a tragedy because this is the covenant that they, they were to live under. And they were to live by God's Word. And they were to feed on God's Word. They were to walk in faith and obedience. It was to define them as a people. They had this incredible legacy and history. And it was right under their noses, right there, in the temple. And they had missed it. 
tragedy, but what a blessing. What a blessing to rediscover the Word, to read it, and to, to find those words of life and to understand what this is all about. And so discovering the Word for them takes them to a new level of the revival that they were experiencing. It, introdu- it informs their zeal and now directs their worship. And it does that in a couple ways. First off, they read through and they saw this wonderful covenant that they were called to, this gracious covenant that God had made, having rescued them from Egypt to be His people. But they saw in that that there were blessings promised in faith, for faith and obedience and curses for rebellion. And they read about the curses and they knew they were in trouble because they had done great wickedness as a people. And so there's a response to this. There's deep conviction. They're, they're, Josiah tears his clothes. Basically deep, deep concern, deep conviction. This is awful. They understand through the Word the depths of their sin. They didn't quite know that before. The Word of God brings clarity and understanding to, to what sin is and what truth is. That is meant to couple with the power of God and not to operate separately. And so there's a deep conviction and they seek the Lord. They, they would have understood, having read the book of the law, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And so they seek out a prophet. There probably weren't many prophets around at the time. Manasseh had killed probably most of them. They find a prophetess, Huldah, who speaks God's word to them. Speaks indeed that yes, judgment is coming, but it's not going to come now because you have sought me. And God is always a God, by the way, who is merciful to those who repent and turn. It's never, ever too late to turn. Never, ever too late to turn. He's a gracious God. You can do nothing that is bigger, worse than the power of the grace of God to overcome. He's always there. And you can turn and trust Him. You can do that today, right here, right now, and receive all the blessings that come with the new life in Christ. Christ died for our sins rose again so there's power in God to break the hold of sin in our lives. And so you can turn right now and experience forgiveness and new life. It's never, ever too late. It never will be too late until the final day when you breathe your final breath. Then it will be too late. Josiah and the kingdom of Israel repented and so they were given blessing through, from God, pronounced through Huldah the prophet. The second way the Word of God affected them is it, it defined their relationship with God. Now they understood what they were called to. They understood that they were called to this covenant, this agreement, this solemn agreement with God, that He had been gracious to them, and now they were to believe Him and obey Him and walk with Him. So they, the, the outline, the contours, the specifics of this relationship are defined by the Word. We understand what it means to walk with God through the Word. Revival is about new life, right? That new life is living in relationship with God, and we know what that is by the Word of God. That's what goes on for them. And, and it's signified by the Passover they celebrate, because the Passover was the celebration of that covenant. The, the most important way to celebrate the covenant was through the Passover, the yearly Passover. And so they realize we're called to, in covenant with God, so they, they choose to celebrate this Passover. And the Scripture says that no Passover had occurred like this one since the days of Samuel. So throughout all the kings, even in the days of David and, and Saul, uh, Solomon, there was no greater Passover than this one under Josiah. So there's real revival. There's life. And it's all the people. It's not just Josiah. Like 
he's devoted, he's going to have his own Passover. It says small and great alike. All the people were there celebrating this Passover, celebrating the covenant, celebrating that God had made a way for them, that there was atonement for sin and new relationship in God. They were celebrating that together. And it was quite a Passover. The Word of God defined and directed them in all this, and, and that's so important to understand. It's not merely about fresh zeal and fresh repentance. It's about the Word of God defining life. And, and what happens to them is they rediscover the Word. They rediscover the Bible. And God leads them in this new life. And, and that is such an important part of a genuine revival. A genuine revival will be a renewal in the Word of God. And false revivals or, or immature revivals, incomplete revivals, won't have that element. The ones that are really just passing fads may be even a legitimate move of God, but an immature, incomplete move as far as people responding, they, they won't have the Word. It's the Word has to be present and rich in a revival to, to be what it should be, to be what it ought, what God wants. And that's what goes on in Josiah's revival. They rediscover the Word. And if you read in history the revivals that produced good fruits over the long haul, they were revivals of rediscovering something about God's Word. It, it was in many of these revivals as if they were like Josiah, discovering something that they had, hadn't seen in a while. Azusa Street Revival, 1906 to 1909 or so. And this revival, it started as a small prayer meeting. They'd been reading about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. They read the stories and the instructions in the letter about the ministry of the Spirit. And then they looked at their lives and said, wait a second, see what's there, and I look at my own life, there's a difference, what's going on? And they started to seek the Lord. They wanted to see the Lord work. They wanted to see the gifts that they were reading about operate in their lives. They wanted to see the power operate in their lives. They wanted to see the love for the gospel, the zeal for the gospel in their lives. They wanted to see evangelism and missions that they read in the book happen in their lives. And so they sought the Lord for revival together. Just this little prayer meeting. They sought Him according to His Word. They sought Him for an outpouring of the Spirit. And God graciously sent revival to, to them in a very unlikely place. A small band, mostly African-American believers, without much education, meeting in a former barn on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And that revival is still shaking the world. There are 500 million believers approximately, presently, who would trace their lineage to that revival. Azusa Street. And what God did in, in really restoring the, the prominence of the third person of the Trinity. And you'll read, if you read about the revival too, you'll see that there was a love for the gospel. An emphasis on the blood of Christ that was at the core of what they did. And that this revival of well, emphasizing the, the power of the blood and the power of the Holy Spirit has affected the world. 500 million believers today. The fastest growing part of the Christian world is the Pentecostals who trace their lineage to Azusa Street. Now, there might have been things that were not right in, in Azusa Street and really every revival you can find error, but these guys got the two things right. The blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for Azusa Street. The Word of God brought that revival. And the Word of God is to bring every legitimate revival. It's what sparks true revival. It guides and directs true revival. And, and 
Revivals are fueled by the word and defined by the word like they were in Josiah's day. So we need to be a people of the book and read it and pray in line with what we see. The promises of God, the truth of God. We should not settle for less than what's in the book. Asking God for power, asking God to do the sorts of things that we see in the Bible. Final point. God, we are to seek the God who sends revival to accomplish His sovereign purposes. Now we read the story and as you heard, it doesn't end as good as it starts. For some reason, Josiah at the end decides to get involved directly with Egypt. Now this was something that they were discouraged from doing. They really were to have nothing to do with Egypt. And certainly they should have sought the Lord, or Josiah should have sought the Lord before he sought to intervene in battle with Pharaoh. But there's no mention of him seeking the Lord. Something goes on in the life of Josiah where he does not seek God. He takes things on himself. And God tries to speak through him to him through who? The Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And yet he doesn't heed. Pharaoh was going up to, to fight the Babylonians on behalf of Assyria. Maybe Josiah thought, you know, I need to intervene so they can't do that because Assyria you know, had oppressed us earlier. He gets involved in, in international political intrigue. And he doesn't seek the Lord. And he loses his life as a result. It's the end of his amazing life. And actually within 12 years, Jerusalem gets conquered and the people go into exile. It's a sad ending to all the excitement of revival in our chapters. So how do we understand that? How do we understand that? We saw this incredible revival from the Lord in His mercy. Great things happening. And it ends this way. Josiah gets killed in battle, a battle he shouldn't have been in. And then 12 years later, they're in exile. I think we need to understand that God is the one in charge of revival, not us. And God has His sovereign purposes to accomplish in and through revival. And we may not understand them all. But the revival is ultimately about him and his purposes, not us. And he knows what he's doing. A couple of things I think we can surmise in the revival under Josiah. First, even though 12 years later they went into exile, the revival itself, which lasted throughout his reign, almost his whole reign, was a blessing. In and of itself, those years were good years. Good years of being close to the Lord. Good years of walking together in unity as his people. Good years in encountering God and obeying God. Those were good years. It was good in and of itself. We see that. We know that first off. But also, secondly, I think God used Josiah's revival in a significant way. God knew what was coming. He knew, he knew that exile was coming. And I believe he used it to preserve a remnant who would go into exile having experienced that revival. A remnant who remained faithful. A remnant who, even though they were alongside others who were faithless, believed God. You know the names of some of these people, right? Jeremiah. Jeremiah became a prophet under Josiah. Ezekiel, probably as a young man, and was part of that revival under Josiah. Daniel and his friends as well. And many others. Not everybody who went into exile was faithless. And I believe that, that God had prepared those people through that revival. They had encountered God. They had tasted what it is to walk with God. And as they were sent into exile, God used them to lead the people to hold on and to believe and to wait. 
that coming back there'd be restoration. God has his sovereign purposes in revivals. He works. And he preserves fruit. Even though there may be difficulty and mistakes by its leaders, God produces good fruit. He has his sovereign purposes through revival. And had there been no revival through Josiah, perhaps there would have been no Jeremiah, no Ezekiel, no Daniel, no godly remnant. But I think we can say that they had encountered God in that revival under Josiah and remained faithful, even in exile. God used them. God produces good fruit that lasts through revival. Sometimes the Josiahs of revival meet their ends in less than satisfactory ways. Evan Roberts led the Welsh revival. It was an amazing revival. If you read about his later life, it doesn't end too well. Not terribly, but he drifted into subjectivism, bad doctrine, and isolation. He saw two or three years of incredible fruitfulness, and that was it. William Seymour of Azusa Street finished his life as a struggling pastor of a divided church. Each revival has had its fringe members. Not everything that goes on in a revival related to the leaders and people is good, but there's a sovereign God over revival, accomplishing His sovereign purposes and producing eternal results. I would submit to you, I think I can verify this, and what we see going on throughout the earth right now, what the Lord's doing and building His church, reaching the lost, magnifying His name, I think you can find a link between all those different works and some revival recent that God has brought. There's fruit that lasts. Certainly Azusa Street, right? The Korean revival. Even right here in New England. I don't know if you know, the last time we probably experienced something like revival was back in 1950. Billy Graham first came to Boston. And people said he's going to fail. He's going to come here. Guy from the South. Yeah, it went well out in Los Angeles. He's going to come here. It's going to fail. This is New England. Don't you know New England? But it didn't fail. He came to Boston. God moved powerfully, gave him great favor. They had to move the venue to the Boston Garden to fit everybody, and they turned 5,000 people away from coming to hear Billy Graham at the Boston Garden. The Roman Catholic Church was supportive. Actually, Billy Graham developed a friendship with the Cardinal, Cardinal Cushing, at the time. That friendship and the work that God did led to the formation of Gordon-Conwell Seminary and the property that Gordon-Conwell is now on came out of that relationship and that revival that went on at that time. Think of all the fruit that's come from Gordon-Conwell tracing back to 1950. Billy Graham came back after January and March and April, spoke to 100,000 people on Boston Common. There were thousands who came to Christ through that. Can you imagine 100,000 on Boston Common coming to hear the gospel proclaimed? 100,000. I was told by a pastor and author, Gordon McDonald, who uh, was pretty much one of the founding pastors of Grace Chapel and has been in New England, that many of the leaders in New England evangelicalism through the 70s and 80s had come to Christ through that crusade in 1950. And that they were the leaders that were there when, when the next generation came to Christ and there was a mild Jesus movement uh, revival in New England, a powerful one on the West Coast and D.C. area. That's where, actually, by the way, Sovereign Grace comes out of the Jesus movement revival from the 70s and 80s in the D.C. area that the leaders were there in place to lead that next generation. And now that generation is serving and passing the baton to the next. May God bring an even more powerful revival among the millennials. 
We can look throughout the globe and we will see the lasting fruit of revival. Social change and reform, laws, new charities, new organizations, but most importantly, new vitality, new believers, and the mission going forward to carry God's purposes. So even though revivals can be fleeting, even though the leaders may not remain fully faithful, even though there may be fringe elements and errors in them, God accomplishes His sovereign purposes through revival, His great and worthy purposes. So let us not despise the revival under Josiah because Josiah didn't finish well. Let us not despise any genuine revival because the leaders maybe later wandered or there were elements that weren't right. Let us look for God's activity as defined by the Word, as we see here. Let us look back into history and look for God's activity and God's sovereign purposes. Let us look presently at revivals that might be going on now the same way. And probably more important for us, let us look to the future that God would send revival, that He would work and in and through us here according to the Word of God, according to His sovereign purposes. If the band could come up as we close. We're going to sing a song, prepare for communion, and I think communion is related to what I'm talking about because the word is revival, bringing life, fresh life. Communion is where we celebrate the life we have in Christ, what He's done for us. He gave His life. He shed His blood for us. He rose again for new life for us. And when we take the elements and celebrate together, we're remembering this and we're encountering God and the life of God through this sacrament. And so I'd like just to tune your thoughts a little bit as you prepare. As you prepare for communion, as you hold the elements in your hands, to pray this, Lord, revive me. Lord, Revive me. Bring fresh new life. Show me where other things have taken precedence. Bring me new life. Revive me, Lord. And the second prayer, Lord, revive us. This, this church, this whole church, this land. Lord, revive us. Those two prayers, let's do that as we receive communion. The usher is going to pass communion out. If you are not a believer, we're glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. We just encourage you to let the elements pass, though, because these, these are uh, part of our celebration of belonging to Christ, and so it doesn't make sense to celebrate that if you've yet to believe. But if you're a believer, uh, take the elements. There's also gluten-free option there. Uh, so as the band plays, let's just receive the elements. If we could stand together, please. Um, let's receive the elements and just pray those two prayers. Lord, revive me. Lord, revive us. And after the song, we'll celebrate.